All right, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, great time to be in God's house. Thank you for coming today. We, uh, we're actually going to finish our series of Jonah today. Um, four chapters, eight weeks. That's about how it works, right? Last week, we learned or we reminded ourselves that God is love, that it's his essence. And we learn that if we truly have his spirit in us, we must love others. Not because we're required to, but because we can't help it. It's our essence. We, we can't help it and we can't stop it. The more we allow the spirit of God to flow through us, the more we love other people. We find that we love people we used to hate. We may hate people for a while or at least be angry at people for a while, but if we have God's spirit in us, he doesn't let us stay there. And he will take us to desperation if necessary, just like he did Jonah to get that crud out of our heart. If you missed the sermon last week, I encourage you to go to our website and check it out. I've been watching our world, specifically America, trying to learn the lesson that God is trying to teach us. It seems to me that he wants us to deal with our racism issue or rip our nation up in the process. We apparently did not learn the lesson of the Civil War, and it seems we're headed back to very similar times. In fact, it's eerie how similar they are. So I thought it might be helpful for us to spend another week at least focusing on this lesson. Jonah had to go through a gastric emptying study to figure out how to get rid of his racism. We don't want to have to do that. I don't remember a day in my life when I wasn't dealing with the issue of race. It's like a plague in our culture, and you wonder why we can't get over it. Why, why can't we learn what we're supposed to learn? It's much more damaging than COVID-19. When I was eight years old, I began noticing something different at school. Over at the high school, the National Guard and the dogs were there every day. All my friends in the neighborhood were moving away at the same time. I was too young to understand white flight. I didn't know what it was. But I remember using all the for sale signs as hurdles as I ran home from school. I remember the parents yelling at each other outside the school, not really understanding what the issues were. Soon after second grade, my soon-to-be best friend moved in next door. He was great. His dad was a psychiatrist. His mom would eventually become a superintendent of schools. Eric and I did everything together that summer. We thought it was funny that our houses were mirror images of each other because we were too. One day we were playing basketball in our driveway, just Eric and I, but we wanted to play like we'd seen the big kids play, so we played shirt and skins. Dumb, I guess, since there were just two of us. Perhaps more ridiculous since Eric was black and I was white. Our parents were laughing at us and we had no idea why. I wish I could have lived my whole life that way. I had no idea what everything meant, never thought about it, never considered it until school started in third grade. Every day after school, I got beat up, every day. My white friends whose house had not yet sold beat me up for having a black friend. The black kids beat me up for trying to act like I belonged with them. 
I learned to fight and run at a young age. By sixth grade, I learned that skin color mattered to some people. From that year on, it was no longer the white kid who was in the majority. From that point on in school, I was always in the minority. I had no idea what Eric was going through. Their house was often attacked. People left things in the front yard. They received threatening phone calls. He never spoke about it. But I noticed that his mom always kept both of us on a very short leash when we were outside together. When I was 12 years old, it seemed that I had almost no friends. I begged my parents to move. I begged them because I couldn't live in the white world. I couldn't live in a black world. So I must need to live somewhere else. I'll never forget, my dad took me to a movie. He took me to a movie that was playing, actually in a theater, it was a remake, or it was a movie, but it was one of those places that plays the older movies, and it was To Kill a Mockingbird. And there was a scene in that movie where Atticus walks into a courthouse, and all of the black people who are in the balcony stand up in respect for him because of the way he had supported them. My dad then took me out of the theater, and he told me a story about my grandfather, he said, your grandfather was superintendent of schools in a city in Arkansas. He commanded all kinds of respect among the black community because he demanded that all, Southern, all kids against Southern norms get the same education and play on the same playground. He said it almost got him killed. My dad told me that we come from a family that would never leave our neighbors. We were leaving and God had placed us there. True friends, he said, would come. By ninth grade, I had to do a presentation in school about my family. Pick somebody in your family and tell us about them. I chose my great-great-great-grandfather, who served in the Civil War in the Arkansas 3rd Division and lost his leg at Gettysburg. When I finished that, you could have heard a pen drop. And then somebody in the background said, your great-grandfather probably beat mine and probably raped my great-great-grandmother. I went to a magnet school in high school to try to get away. When I was 16, I was run off the street by a crazy guy with a gun. He was upset because I was driving home with my black friend. Nobody believed me until the police found him and arrested him in a bar for beating up a black guy later that night. My church encouraged us to invite friends to youth group. So I did. And then I learned that those weren't the kind of friends that they really wanted me to have at church. I grew up singing Jesus Loves the Little Children, not realizing how much of a lie it was. He may love them, but his church didn't. They didn't love my friends. They claimed to love God, and I knew at that point I was done with church. My entire life had been about living with hypocrites. I left the church, but not Jesus, at the age of 18 and never came back till I was 35. Southern men my age never seemed to fit in. I seemed to struggle most of my young adult life with where I was from and what my ancestors had done. I love the South and I always have. But I'm ashamed of what my relatives have done. Can't go back and change it, and attempts at this point to do something about it seem patronizing and anemic. I've lived with the southern white stereotype my whole life, and perhaps not as often and as frequent as it is today. 
Fortunately, God has taught me to have an audience of one and not seek the approval of other people. I'll never forget the moment when I came across a document. My dad was doing some lineage stuff. And he had a document showing my great-great-grandfather's possessions. And on that document were five slaves. And I remember just looking at that document. And at the bottom of the document, there was an X because my great-great-great-grandfather was illiterate. And I remember just feeling so ashamed. But I couldn't do anything about it. Brad Paisley had a song called Accidental Racist. The lyrics go like this. I'm proud of where I'm from, but not all that we've done. It's not like you and me can rewrite history. Paying for mistakes some folks made long before we came. Caught somewhere between Southern pride and Southern blame. The relationship between the Mason Dixon needs some fixing. I just want to make things right. Our culture is as divided today as it's ever been. It's full of tension. Human lives matter because they matter to God. All lives. Poor people, drug addicted people, those in prison, those in mansions, those who are very educated, those who are not, those who are arrogant, those who are judgmental, those who love Jesus, those who don't. Those God chose to make white, those God chose to make black, those God chose to make every other color in between. Every one of the people are in the human race. Do you wonder what God thinks about all this? How the human race got lost in racism. How did that happen? Racial discrimination has a very long and sad history. The Bible constantly, consistently views it as contrary to God's will. The entire human race descended from Adam and Eve. Eve is called the mother of all the living. All humans are created in the image of God. Acts 17, 26. And he made from every, I'm sorry, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each of us. God is clear, there's only one race, and it's called the human race. Human genetic studies confirm this. The Human Genome Project verified that the human genome sequence in all humans is almost exactly the same. 99.8% match among all humans. Everybody in this room, every human you've ever seen, 99.8% of the DNA is identical. In fact, they note that while there may be variations in skin color and hair color in individuals, there's no consistent pattern that could distinguish one race from another. In other words, if we took everybody in the world and just looked at their DNA, we couldn't tell you who's black, who's white, who's yellow, who's green, who's purple. So you may be wondering, why then do people with different racial characteristics originate in different regions of the world? At some point, as people were driven across the world, separated by languages, they became geographically isolated in regions. And they began to intermarry. Certain alleles or genes became more prominent in that group that was geographically isolated. People isolated in Europe began to look more and more like other Europeans than those who were isolated in Asia or Africa. Are you ready for this? I can guarantee you 
based on the Bible and genetic studies that Adam and Eve, wait for it, because this is going to blow you up. Adam and Eve were black. No doubt about it. Every picture you've ever seen of Adam, Eve, Noah, they were black. Every picture you've seen of white Eve holding the apple? No. Modern genetic studies show that when a lighter skinned person has a child with a darker skinned person, we all know this, none of their children have skin darker than the darkest parent. Right? That means that Adam and Eve weren't white. In fact, they were probably some of the darkest humans ever that walked on the earth. Because every generation after that got lighter. In addition, the same would have been true for Noah and his family. So let me give you a little genetic lesson. Humans carry two genes for skin color. They carry a combination of a black gene and a white gene. The genes only impact skin color by determining the amount of melanin in the cells. That's the only difference among people. How much melatonin is in your cells? That's all it is. Each gene has a dominant and a recessive form and are distinguished by big A, little a, big B, little B, and I know you're having genetic flashbacks to Mendelian genetics. Just get over it, it'll be okay. We're gonna walk through this. Now, A, can you put, is there a slide for, uh, yeah, let's put this one up. All right, so here's your, here's your lesson. Yeah, this is what you get for having a doctor that's a pastor. All right. <laughs> a, A, B, B is the dominant color of black people. Little a, little a, little b, little b is the color of white people. Okay? So basically, everything else is everything in between. So what about Adam and Eve and Noah? Well, Adam and Eve were a, little a, big b, little b, and thus not white nor black, but mostly black. Without boring you too far, since Eve was formed from Adam, she's a clone. If they were both all big A's, everybody in the world would be black. If they were both all little A's, everybody in the world would be white. So they weren't. Neither was Noah. They were, however, probably some of the darkest people that walked on the earth with a mixed genetic, a heterozygous genetic trait. What about Noah? Well, Noah would have been the same. And the ark would have been integrated, by the way, among his family. So I, I tell you that because I want you to understand that the, the Bible's clear that there's a unity of design in the human race. There are many different instances of marriages in the Bible between people of different ethnicities. And it's always endorsed as okay. Joseph, who is a Semitic, a descendant of Abraham married Asenah, who was a daughter of an Egyptian priest. From that marriage came two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses, who was Semitic, married a Cushite woman, an African woman from the area of Sudan in Ethiopia. When Miriam and Aaron criticized their marriage, God punished them. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus includes Rahab, who was a Canaanite, and Ruth, who was a Moabite. It's important to note that there were prohibitions regarding God's people for marriage. 
God was very specific about who you could and could not marry. The prophet Ezra calls the Jewish people in Ezra 9 and 10 to repent for marrying outside the faith. He tells them to get on their knees because they have married people who follow other gods. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away nations before you, and then he lists all of them, you shall not intermarry with them. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God never tells us not to marry somebody who's of a darker skin tone or a lighter skin tone. What he says is, make sure you have the same God. You are never forbidden from marrying any human on the planet as long as you worship and serve the same God. Note the reason. For they would turn you away from your God. That's what he's worried about. Throughout the Bible, God warns us not to marry outside the faith. We're never instructed not to marry outside of our race because we're all in the human race. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, God directs his children to guard and protect their faith. Disciples of Jesus are not to marry non-believers. It's clear in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Because the non-believer will turn you away from following God. Take home point, there's only one race. The human race, God loves them all, and we should too. Marry any human you want, but don't marry any faith that you want. So what about the New Testament? What did Jesus teach about racism? In Jesus' day, the issue was not white-black. It was Jewish and Samaritan. After the Babylonians moved many of the Israelites out, they moved in with other people. They intermarried. We've talked about that before. The Jews felt the Samaritans were half-breeds. They worshipped at a, a, another temple because they weren't allowed to come to the one in Israel. They were felt to be a mixed-blood race, part Gentile, part Jewish. To make matters worse, these um, half-breeds, they called them, also practiced a blended form of Jewish religion. They weren't following the true law as revealed by Moses. This form of Judaism was highly offensive to the Jews. And so many of them drove them out into the northern area of Samaria. Now here's a map I want you to see. I think. A map I want you to see. Okay. There's no map? Okay. Well, imagine a map. I wanted you to see it. I'm not lying. Um, Judah is in the south. Samaria is direct north. Galilee's in the north. Okay, they would literally go four days out of their way to get to Judah, come up the climb to avoid stepping foot in Samaritan. They would go out of their way. Clearly, the Jews despised the Samaritans because of the prejudices they had. There's no doubt about it. Look at this passage, John 4. Let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles, by the way. We're going to be in John 4, verse 1. I'll wait. I meant to tell you that earlier. There's Bibles on the seats if you want it. If you go to the sort of the two-thirds of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll be in John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptized more disciples than John, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And note verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. He could have gone the way every other person went. He could have gone down around the Jordan River and up through Jericho and up the mountain to Jerusalem like every other Jewish person had done for hundreds of years. But this scripture says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Over nine times in the book, John emphasizes that Jesus did only what the Father told him to do. Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was a person waiting for him. God had ordained a divine moment. Jesus knew that he had to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem on this trip because someone was waiting for him along the way. First point to our discussion about how to overcome racism. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to get out of your comfort zone. If you want to get the racism out of your heart, go learn about the people that you struggle with. Get out of your comfort zone and go see them. In order to do that, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to leave his comfort zone. It would have been much more comfortable to him to stick with all the other Jewish people. His disciples would have liked it a whole lot more. It would have been easier to associate only with those who were like him. He already had enough problems with the Jewish people without intentionally going out of his way to hang out with outcasts. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It wasn't bad enough that Jesus had gone through Samaria. But now he's interacting with Samaritans on his way. It would have made him unclean for the temple, by the way. The Jewish people would have freaked out that he actually talked to a Samaritan. I mean, it's bad enough to have to cut through there to go to Galilee. He might have been able to explain that. Look straight ahead. Don't make eye contact. These are pagan half-breeds who don't worship God. Don't speak to them. Not Jesus. Jesus teaches us the second point to overcome racism. You must go beyond your social circle. If you want to get to know people, sometimes you got to go outside your circle, your social circle. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They didn't hang out together. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't get along. They traveled in completely different social circles. Not only does Jesus get outside of his comfort zone, he gets outside of his social circle. And if you think things are bad for Jesus now, they're about to get worse. He's not interacting with just any Samaritan. He's talking to a woman. The Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day do not teach women. And yet there's Jesus reaching out to a Samaritan woman. And when it seemed things couldn't get any worse, they did. Not only was this person a Samaritan and a woman, but she's an immoral woman. 
She's a woman that the Samaritans don't even talk to. She'd been married five times and she wasn't married to the man she's now living with. So this is the picture. Jesus is hanging out at a well, all alone with a woman, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman who is known for adultery. She's got three strikes against her already, so to speak, she should have been called out. It would have been very unusual for a woman to go to the well during the day. It's too hot. Women usually came early in the morning or late in the evening, and they always came in groups to protect themselves. A woman coming to the well in the heat of the day by herself is a woman that has no friends. A woman that wants to avoid the shame of the other women. She's probably trying to avoid them because they didn't accept her either. Are you starting to get the picture? Jesus went to see the outcast of outcasts. He had to go through Samaritan because she was waiting for him. God had ordained a moment with her. There was anyone on the face of the planet that Jesus should not have associated with, it was this woman. But he was willing to go beyond his social circles. He was willing to break barriers and build bridges. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking to her? Marvel's not the right word. See, marvel to us implies wonder. Oh, you're talking... Aghast would be a better translation. They were freaked out. Their Messiah had just become unclean on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. He was there and he's going and he's about to be seen with a woman, an adulterous woman, a Samaritan woman. They walk up, he's talking to her at the well. They don't know what he said. They were blown away by the fact that here was this man they believed to be the Jewish Messiah. Did they join Jesus in the conversation? No way. They didn't even talk about it. If you read through the rest of the passage, you'll discover they didn't even speak to Jesus until after the woman had left and gone back into town. And then when they did approach Jesus, they didn't bring up the subject. Here's what they asked him because they didn't know what else to do. What do you want for lunch? What do you want for lunch, Jesus? Because I don't want to talk about the obvious. They were just going to pretend this incident never happened. Jesus' disciples were prejudiced themselves. Luke records in another time when Jesus is traveling to Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to a particular village in Samaria, and he sent some of his disciples ahead to provide for the arrival. But the Samaritans in that town refused to welcome him. So James and John, the sons of thunder, said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They were ready to wipe out all those dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing Samaritans without a second thought, just like Jonah wanted to do the Ninevites. You want us to wipe them out, God? Third point. In order to overcome racism, you may have to go it alone. You may have to go it alone. Your friends may not come with you. Your social circles get blown up. Jesus is going to have to go it alone. He's going to have to pay a price for it as well. 
In chapter 8, Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders. By then, they know what he's done. Do you know what they said? That clinches it. We were right all along, and we called you a Samaritan and said you were crazy. I believe they called him a Samaritan because of this interaction. Just like someone who is prejudiced against black people might call someone who befriends them a Negro lover, Jesus is being labeled a Samaritan lover. And believe me, it was not meant as a compliment. There's a song we all know that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's a verse that's dear to my heart. It says, though no go with me, still I will follow. We know the lyrics, but have we lived them? Though none go with me, still I will follow. Jesus did. None went with him. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Jesus was able to reach the people of that town because he was willing to go outside of his comfort zone. He was willing to go beyond his social circle and he was willing to do it alone if he had to. And because of that, people who never knew about God, people who had been dealing with prejudice their whole life, began to understand who Jesus really was. So the Bible is clear. There's only one race. So surely the church has reflected Jesus' teachings, right? I mean, throughout history, if we look at church history, we'll see that we've obeyed this, that we've never really been prejudiced as a church. Unfortunately, no. The history of Jesus' church is terribly, terribly counter to his teachings. I love studying the Civil War, particularly the religious aspects of the war. Most of the things I study are the sermons that were written by Southern preachers and the sermons written by Northern preachers. It's wonderful in many ways because they lived in a culture, get this, where every Monday the sermons from the churches were published in the paper. And everybody read them, and everybody went to church. The beauty of that is, historically, we can read them too. They weren't lost. They're still around. Sermons were huge back then. And they're full of racial prejudice and ignorance. Not based on the entirety of God's Word, but ripping verses out of context to support whichever side they were on, north or south. The peculiar institution of slavery was not only expedient, it was actually ordained by God, they said, and held up in Scripture. Southern preachers declared that slavery was a sacred trust imposed on the South, that it was their duty to keep it going. Further, some said God had ordained slavery as a punishment for African paganism. We are here torturing these people in Jesus' name because of their paganism. Jesus lived in a world where slavery existed, they said. And he didn't utter one word of censure against it. The letters of the Apostle Paul complain explicit commands that slaves should be obedient to their masters. Therefore, ran the argument, contemporary Christians had no business condemning as sinful a social arrangement that the Bible sanctioned. That was the Southern view. Pastors in the North taught that the churches were far from unanimous about their idea of slavery. Most denounced it as sin. At the start of the war, 
The Northern policy was to save the Union, not free the slaves. But when they started losing battles, they began to believe that they were being punished by God for not taking on the slavery issue. Early in the war, the North lost most of the battles. In fact, there's no reason other than human stupidity that they shouldn't have won at that point. But what happened was the pastors began to realize we're not winning because we're being punished for not taking on slavery. So it's fascinating, but at least on three occasions, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed public fast days where he encouraged Americans to go to their houses of worship, confess their sins humbly to the Almighty, and ask God's blessing on their nation. Unfortunately, the Civil War did little to resolve racism in the U.S. We have a horrible history as a nation when it comes to racial issues. We obliterated the American Indians, enslaved them in African Americans, and when we could no longer enslave them, we imprisoned them in segregation and substandard working and living arrangements and education. We imprisoned Japanese Americans during World War II, and racism is, racism is still one of the top three issues facing the survival of our nation. But the church of Jesus is different, right? I mean, those who follow the teachings of Jesus, who understand what he did in Samaria, were different, right? In 1957, Martin Luther King wrote what we would call today an op-ed. It was basically a message to the churches of America. It's rarely published, but let me read to you what he wrote to the churches of America in 1957. But America, another thing disturbs me about your church. You have a Negro church and a white church. Oh, America, that is quite disturbing, for that cannot exist within the body of Christ. How did that ever get into being anyway? You've allowed segregation to come into the church, America. Oh, how tragic when you stand up on Sunday morning to sing, In Christ there is no East or West. Isn't it tragic that you stand in the most segregated hour of your Christian nation? They tell me that there's more integration in sports arenas and nightclubs than there is in the Christian church. Oh, how tragic that is, how appalling that is. They tell me that there are even Christians among you who try to justify segregation on the basis of the Bible. They try to argue that the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse on the children of Ham. Oh, my friends, oh, America, this is blasphemy. This is against everything that the Christian religion stands for. This is against the will of the Almighty God. It's hard to read those words and realize that we've gone the opposite direction. If you'd been on the state capitol grounds in Jackson, Mississippi on a certain Sunday morning in 1965, you might have seen an unusual sight. Across the street was a large church. At the top of the front steps stood a row of white ushers, arm links, blocking the way to the door. There were four or five black men conservatively dressed for church standing on the lower steps facing the door. As one of the men approached the top step, an usher disengaged his arm, smashed the would-be visitor in the face, sending him sprawling down the steps. While inside, the congregation was singing the opening hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. When it comes to the racial issue in the Church of America, we are all guilty of sin. We've allowed the Church of Jesus to become a weapon against the desires of God. God, however, has a solution. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Too often the church looks just like society. The church in Jackson was doing what everyone else seemed to be doing in the South. George Wallace ran for governor of Alabama on a platform that was blatantly racist. He promised to fight integration to the point of defying federal orders and personally blockaded schoolhouse doors. He ended his inaugural address with the famous statement, I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was, he was elected in a landslide. That summer, he refused to allow black students to register at the University of Alabama until he was forced to do so under the threat of military intervention. Through his tenure as governor and run for the presidency in 1968, he spouted racial hatred while blacks were beaten, jailed, black churches were born, and black children were murdered. Black children were murdered. So as followers of Jesus, how do we humble ourselves? How do we turn from our wicked ways? How do we turn to God's word to better understand truth? Well, in order to do that, we need to understand prejudice, discrimination, segregation, and racism, because they're not all the same. Prejudice judges a man's character by his outside appearance. You look at somebody and you make assumptions about them based on the way they look. People are prejudiced about somebody's race, their social status as homeless or mansion dwellers, their educational level, both uneducated and educated. Prejudice is when you look at someone without knowing anything about them and make assumptions. They're white, so they must be this. They're rich, so they must be this. They're poor, so they must be like this. They're black, so they must be like this. Prejudice is what leads to profiling. Prejudice is ugly. It divides. It ostracizes people. It's the mark of an ignorant mind that perceives itself to be enlightened. Prejudice thinks it understands persons or actions before having any firsthand knowledge about that person or action. Prejudice has its root in, in ignorance, and it leads to further ignorance. Prejudice is blind. After Jesus healed a man who was born blind and witnessed that man's faith, he pointedly identified the Pharisees' prejudice. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, He's physically blind, but now spiritually blind able to see, you're physically able to see, but you're so blind. Prejudice is a perception problem. It's an unfair judgment. It's never neutral. Strongly for or strongly against someone without knowing any facts. Sometimes it's confused with conviction, but there's nothing noble about that prejudice. Prejudice will blind us to the truth at best and cause us to believe... <clears throat> a lie at worst. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to elect, and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing with partiality. Discrimination deprives a person's right to have. Prejudice is I'm judging you based on how I see you. I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to make some assumptions about you and they're probably not good. Discrimination is, I'm now going to take the next step 
and not allow you to have something because of what I've judged you to be. Segregation separates your right to belong to the human race. Not only have I prejudice against you, not only have I been discriminatory against you, now I'm going to segregate you. But the most dangerous of all is stereotyping. And we're good at it. Stereotyping deprives a person of their right to be. It's the most damaging of all. Stereotypes lead to prejudice. Stereotype is a lazy way of lumping together all the people who come from a certain class, a certain occupation, a certain race, and attributing to each individual the same characteristics of the group that you've determined exists. Although something may be true of a group, it's not specifically true of every person in that group. It's almost impossible to have racism and hatred for somebody you really know. Let me repeat that. It is almost impossible to have racism and hatred for somebody you actually know. It's interesting, I'll just throw this in. In the U.S., most people don't trust, their doctor, don't trust doctors and don't like doctors, but they love their doctor, I think. All right. The point is, it's very hard to hate somebody that you actually know. All the sayings, walk in another man's shoes, understand where they come from, live their life and then judge them are all true. I've never been more stereotyped in my life than I have in the last 10 years. Americans have become splitters and spitters. We stereotype each other, it's horrible. I'm a white male, conservative, Christian, Republican, have Southern roots, well-educated, wealthy, pastor, doctor, Texan, gun owner, pro-family, pro-police, pro-military, pro-USA, pro-Windows, and pro-Android. As soon as you hear those things about me, you make assumptions, Lamar. <laughs> Many of the assumptions are actually true. But each of those labels tells you something about me. No, it doesn't. It tells you something you think about me that you don't know. The problem is, is when you jump to conclusions about the individual, placing your prejudice on a group that I'm in, we all do it and we all blame other people for doing it to us. Everybody does it. This is what we do in America. Some assumptions are true, but not all. And stereotyping is when you fail to go any deeper than the label that you put on somebody. Oh, you're a Democrat and you're liberal, okay. You're not even worth being on the planet. Why are you taking my air? That's prejudice, that's stereotypical. Let me just tell you, if there was a Democratic president who was anti-abortion, supported Christian right to express their faith and truth, validated God's truth about sexual identity, appointed pro-life people to the courts and supported God's definition of marriage and family, I'd be a Democrat. Because I align with them on many issues related to helping the poor, bringing education to everyone, preserving the environment for our grandchildren, and yes, even universal health care for everybody. I've actually never met the prototypical Democrat or Republican. Everybody I've ever met is somewhere in between depending on the issue. 
You say that could never happen. A Democrat could never be that way. You just stereotype them. See how easy it is? There was a time in our nation, and I can remember, when your political parley had more to do with your perspective of how involved the government should be and the approach to how we should do our economics rather than having to punch a checklist of social ideologies like today. The Bible says that those who judge according to outward appearances are foolish, that they don't see people the way God sees them, for the Lord does not see as man sees. The Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. And I think when God looks at the heart of his church, it's ugly. Racism deprives a person of their right to birth. It's not new. It was present in biblical times. Nathaniel said this to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, at least he said it to his brother. Come and see, he said. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Racism is ugly. Racism is a small man's man, small man's mind, trying to elevate himself. It's foolish, it's hardy, it's, it's ugly. It's a sin of pride. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. In Acts, he says, he made us from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. In Galatians, Paul says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. God dealt with Peter's heart, his racist heart. See, Peter had the idea that Jewish people were the only people that should receive the message of God. God didn't let that stay in Peter's heart. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. In truth, I perceive God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Race makes no difference to God. Can I just tell you that? It makes no difference to God. God shows no partiality. God is colorblind. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what are we to do? If we realize that our view of other people has been sinful, what are we supposed to do? What is God telling us to do right now? Well, the first thing we have to do is confess. Speak God's truth and then repent. Change our mind and agree with God what he says about other people. Remember that only the work of the Holy Spirit can truly change someone's heart. And remember, it took Jonah years to learn this lesson. On May 15th, while campaigning, 1972, in Laurel, Maryland, George Wallace, who had blocked the doors to Alabama University, was shot five times, leaving him paralyzed and in constant pain. Two years later, he was confined to a wheelchair, divorced from his second wife without the use of his legs, and losing control of his bodily functions. He was a broken and pathetic figure. 
He was a man who finally understood the meaning of suffering. He was a man who'd come to realize what suffering he had caused other people. While being driven home one evening, he passed the open doors of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a black congregation where years earlier Martin Luther King had stood in the pulpit and denounced Wallace for his treatment of African Americans. Overcome with remorse, he stopped the car, was helped into his wheelchair, wheeled up to the aisle to the stunned surprise of the assembly. He tearfully confessed that he'd been wrong, apologized for the suffering that he caused, and asked the blacks of Alabama to forgive him. More importantly, he confessed his sins before God, repented, and received the forgiveness that only comes from God. From that moment forward, God took him out of desperation and led him to transformation. It was an expression of remorse that he would repeat on numerous occasions in the following years, publicly before black audiences on campus and conventions and privately to the black leaders like Coretta Scott King and Jesse Jackson. During two more terms as governor, he built bridges to the black community, developed relationships with black leaders and worked to undo the damage his own racist rhetoric had caused. Until the very end, while bedridden and deaf, he still received visits from friends, both black and white, and met with groups of both for prayer. When Jesus' followers ignore his teachings on the value of the human race, when we forget that red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight, the gospel gets hindered. People don't turn to Jesus if they see nothing in his followers worth following. Mahatma Gandhi, in his autobiography, he wrote, during his student days, he began to wonder if the gospel of Jesus Christ could be the answer. Okay, think about this, Mahatma Gandhi. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he might find the solution to the caste system that he grew up in in India. He struggled with his Hindu faith because he couldn't understand how they could allow the caste system to exist, and he heard that Jesus welcomes everyone, so he began to pursue the Christian faith. One Sunday, he decided to go to services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about what it meant to be a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. If Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. That usher's prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but also turned a person away from trusting him as a savior. Gandhi would go on later to famously quote, your Jesus I love, it's your Christians I can't stand. He was the most influential leader of people in his day. He had an opportunity to influence those people for Jesus Christ. And because of the prejudiced actions of a single church usher, that opportunity was missed in that moment. During his earthly ministry, Jesus shattered the stereotypes of us and them. He broke down barriers everywhere he went. But the question is, what about today? Is he going to break down those barriers on his own, or are we going to join him? We are never to do anything other than to celebrate the differences and the wonder of skin color. We've never met a person Jesus didn't love and die for. We celebrate diversity in nature, and this is something I just don't understand. We go to zoos, right? And we look at animals, and we go, look how great God is. Look how he created that one. Oh, look at the hair on that one. Oh, look how strong that one is. Oh, look how that one does whatever. We go through the zoo, and we look at all these animals. 
and we see God's creativity and we see his purpose and we see his design. And we just sit in wonder watching the nature channel or the world, whatever it is. And we just go, wow, isn't God incredible? Look at the fish. Can you believe that fish does that? Can you believe this does that? Look at how different they are. Can you imagine going to a zoo and every animal is exactly the same? You go on safari, every animal exactly the same. No, we celebrate diversity in God's creation. We go to parks, we go to, we go to waterfalls, we go all these places and we go, wow, God. But then we look at those who bear his image and instead of noting how great God created them, how incredible they are, how beautiful they are, what wonderful people they are, instead of understanding that, we just look and go, but they're not the same. They're not like me. It's incredible when you begin to think about how we approach people. And instead of celebrating the differences, let's go to the next slide. Instead of celebrating some of the differences, we judge them for not being like us. It's crazy. Remnant is a church where only one race is accepted. We welcome all who are in the human race who want to come celebrate Jesus with us. We're committed to trying our very best to not stereotype anybody who walks through these doors. We'll see people as the individuals that God created them to be. We'll celebrate how God uniquely created each and every one of us and brought us here for his purposes. We'll base our impressions on someone on only what we know to be true. We'll not use prejudice as an excuse to avoid calling sin a sin. And will not allow the children of God to use a label on themselves as an excuse for their sinful behavior. We will step out of our comfort zone. We'll go beyond our social circles. And if necessary, we may have to go it alone. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you created each and every one of us. How dare us be arrogant about the 0.2% of our genetic code that we had absolutely nothing to do with? How dare we judge other people that you died for? God, there's so much wrong in the church today. I suspect today that pastors all over the nation are preaching about racism. God, I pray they're preaching from your word and not from their prejudices. Our nation has already been through a time when the pulpit was misused for racial purposes. God, we lift up your word because it's true. We surrender to your word because it's true. We're here because you're true. God, help us to love other people. Help us to love the people you love. Help us to go out beyond our comfort zone, beyond our social circles, and alone if we have to, to engage all people with the greatest message in the world. God, we love you. We thank you for making us each unique. Help us to celebrate our differences in love. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 